Well, good morning, church, and thank you, Carol. Boy, it's nice. I like being in a church where we balance. There's the contemporary sounds and songs, and then some of the really, really old songs. I think that's a healthy mix for people of all generations. It's good to hear those songs again. Walking in the Light, First John, and the Path to Living Deeply in Christ. This is part five. I think such an important topic today, how to avoid both compromise and condemnation. I had initially compromise and despair, but I think how to avoid both compromise and condemnation, how you hear the word of God when it speaks into your soul. The text is uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Get a Bible. Let's study, let's study the text together. That, you don't need... Uh, You know, there's all sorts of ways where preachers tell stories and illustrations and topics, and it's just nice to put our brains right into the words of Scripture and see what they have to say. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. And then this is such a sweeping statement. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world, not just the elect, the whole world, the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. I think these two verses are, are uh, so important. I isolated them, just these two verses together, because they're just vital for a, a sound understanding of, of Christian thinking. John is dealing with an issue that I think still pounds in the minds of, of those who want to follow Jesus. There are constantly two ingredients as we grow in Christ. John's going to look at both of them today. We need, we need these two things like an airplane needs two wings. One by itself won't get anything off the ground. Thankfully, John has these two ingredients locked together in these two opening verses of the second chapter in, in such a simple and direct way that they're just unmissable. First, there's warning. I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Verse 1. Secondly, there's hope. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's verse 2. It all sounds so simple in the text, but it doesn't work out that simply in Christian life and in church teaching. There are those for whom the greatest fear is that if if you just preach grace too strongly, somehow the church will compromise her basic stand on principles of holiness. Pastor Don, if you start preaching grace like it grows on trees, people are not going to care about pleasing God. More worldliness is just going to creep into the church. People will think they can follow Jesus and just live as they please. Make sure people know 
These things are written so that you will not sin. There. But there are others. There are those who fear that people who just fear the warning, the stern message of holiness, they're going to become discouraged, frustrated with their own sense of guilt and shame. They'll feel condemned every time they darken a church door. Pastor Don, make sure people understand that the gospel really gives a fresh start, a new beginning. Don't leave Christians crying over the spilled milk of their lives. There are multitudes of believers who who just don't experience the joy of the Lord. Church makes them feel lousy, unclean, hopeless. Make sure these people hear, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So there you are. I mean, there's obviously more than just some cold academic, theological issue being dealt with in this text. I mean, it, this affects how you hear God speak. It affects what happens in your heart when you go to church. It affects the kind of attitude that grows in your heart when you encounter Christians who have in their past things of which you disapprove. I mean, we're dealing with one of the central issues of New Testament biblical Christian experience. So that's what we want to study. It's a major issue. I'm going to start with John's warning words about sin. Why? Because that's where John starts. So that's what we're going to start. Point number one. The only evidence of new birth is a will to instantly stop sinning. My little children, look at it in that first verse of chapter 2. I'm writing these things to you. So here's the purpose. So that. Why am I writing? Well, here's why. So that you may not sin. Notice those words. So that. I mean... This desire won't always be successful, for sure. But that is the purpose of the words. John says this is the purpose of all that he's writing to these Christians. This is the relationship between biblical truth and personal living. Between doctrine and life between Bible study and actions, between going to church and the rest of the week. So the end result of everything God does in my heart and in my mind is quite simple, according to John. It's to lead me to stop sinning. That isn't happening in my life, at least in measure, growing measure, if that isn't happening in my life, then there's something phony, there's something wasted, there's something tragically incomplete. Whatever I've experienced, it isn't full-blooded New Testament Christianity if, if my heart isn't turning against its own sin. Let's break this down just a little bit on this warning side. Here's what you'll find. A, I'm responsible to stop sinning. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
So if words mean anything at all, this is not just something that's done to me or for me. Certainly the Holy Spirit has a role, but if, if, if the words mean anything, I have to stop. I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. Sin isn't something that God just removes from my life while I'm thinking about something else. It seems to require a, a pretty steadfast will, a focused mind to stop sinning. I, I, I personally think it's never wise just to plan to gradually grow out of some sin. I think you cooperate with the Spirit best when you have a will to stop sinning. That last sentence maybe needs to be explained a little bit. It is blessedly true that as I grow in Christ and deepen my life in his word and in the spirit, that he will increasingly reveal more and more things that he wants brought under his lordship and will help. This is, of course, a never-ending process until Jesus comes again. My own experience is, the way this works, the sins he reveals are sins of a different type the longer I follow Jesus. They move from just bare outward actions to inward dispositions, motives, affections. There's a refining in the way he deals with my heart. But even though that's joyfully true, it will always be the case that, that I'm the one I'm the one who needs to be told to stop sinning, to yield, to obey whatever the Lord reveals. In other words, the Bible never teaches at any point in my walk with the Lord that if I just sort of pledge myself to Jesus and believe in him, these things are just sort of automatically going to be wafted out of my life. I don't think that's scriptural. Here's why. Paul writes, put off your old self. Who does this? Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Or look at Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore. Who does that? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put to death. Have you ever actually put something to death? I can still remember. I can still remember a group of us kids in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, in a field across the street. I can remember when a group of us boys killed a little gopher. And it all seemed so fun and so exciting until we all gathered around as it twitched and squirmed slowly to death. And it felt different then. Say whatever you want. It's no small thing to put something to death, to, to personally stomp the life out of something else. Creatures don't die easily. Killing isn't for the timid. Paul says, put to death, therefore. You, you, you do it. You won't find yourself doing it alone, but you but do it. We, we need to think about this. You, you can't 
follow Jesus without without the will being fairly ruthlessly turned against personal sin. These things are written so that you may not sin. So that's the first thing under that. We, we have this responsibility. Secondly, B, if these words from John are true, I think I need to constantly refix in my mind what the Bible says about sin. I want to do that for a minute. I hope you don't feel it's insulting to your intelligence. I want to just reaffirm some basic truths we all, I think, already know about the biblical doctrine of sin. First, sin is anything that violates the clear commands of Scripture. I mean, that's the obvious place to start. doesn't matter what the subject is. If the Bible says, I must not do it, then I must not do it. You shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not covet, you shall not have any other gods before me, whatever. You never, you never get to live so spiritually that you're on a different, more advanced level and you, and you never have to just hear clear commandments from God, our Creator. Secondly, sin is violating the still, small voice of conscience. I get that in Romans 14, 23. But whoever has doubts, so there's this inward turmoil, is condemned if he eats because the eating is not, is not from faith. Interesting phrase. For whatever does not proceed from faith, we're talking about sin here, is sin. Now, the sin Paul is describing in these verses, in 1423, it moves beyond the immediate context of eating meat that may or may not be clean. The sin being described there in 1423 isn't, isn't in the meat. It's in the violation of the conscience. So our circumstances might be worlds removed from the one described in this text. But in a deeper sense, they're not, they're not removed at all. You know, I really don't feel right about this, but, and then we go ahead. Or, after all, Pastor Don, there's no verse in the Bible that says you can't do such and such. So, and off we go. No, there, there, there may well not be. That's why God very tenderly put this living standard right inside our own skin where God has given each person a, a conscience to fill out a lot of the specific details that are covered in principle in passages in his word. Sin is violating the conscience. Three, sin is allowing my own desires to overrule the voice of God's spirit. Later in this very letter, as we study, John's going to give a name to all those fallen desires in 1 John 2, 15, 16, and 17. He calls them the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions. Interesting. John, John means sin is as simple and common a practice as just allowing the immediate 
visible realm to press into silence the voice of an invisible eternal God. John means that TV and movie and streaming and fashion-directed Christians can never love and hear the Spirit of God. Four, sin is knowing what is right, but not doing it. James talks about it. For whoever knows, there's a knowledge thing, the right thing to do, but then fails to do it. And John (laughs) comes right to the definition. For him, it is sin. That's sin, James says. This is maybe one of the important contributions James makes on the discussion of sin in the New Testament. James says, in a sense, I don't have to do anything bad to sin. I, I, I sin when I don't respond to the Word and the Spirit of God. I sin when I ignore, when I'm lazy, when I procrastinate in the pursuit of holiness, when I'm indifferent and cold, when I should be passionate and quick in obedience. So there, that's, that's what sin is. That's, that's how the Bible describes it. So see, if these verses from John are true, probably I would be wise to keep alive in my heart just a fresh living sense of what sin does. What are the effects of sin? Again, there's basic things we know. First, sin separates me from God. First thing Adam and Eve do, they disobey, they hide the closeness in terms of fellowship with God. We, we still, to this day, call that event the fall because of the distance it creates, the gap between God and his creation. We're not on the same level that we used to be. Everything is lower. Everything is more removed. That's what sin does. Secondly, continued sin and professing Christians, well, it's a denial of the power of the gospel. Here is a gospel that announces the coming of a power, the beginning of a new creation, and my continuance in sin, it's just contrary to everything Jesus died to bring about. Three, sin takes the reality and power out of prayer. I think most of the time Christians think of prayer as being one of the more difficult spiritual disciplines just to faithfully practice with a sense of passion. And I'm not standing here saying prayer is always an easy venture for finite beings. But I also know many times when I find it particularly hard to pray, it can be a sin problem, not just a prayer problem. That, that sin can, can make me doubt my relationship with God. It can make me feel that I've somehow sold out. It can make approaching God a little bit embarrassing. A situation arises that you know needs prayer and you feel a desperate need for divine help, but you're forced into a corner because as you approach God, you feel the weight of your own carelessness and rebellion in other areas of your Christian walk. So so it's one thing to approach God when you know you've failed. 
I mean, we've all been there, and fortunately, there's the promise of grace to help in our time of need. Praise God. But it's entirely something else. And I think it's what John is talking about in our text. When I approach God with the request of the day, knowing that I've chosen to remain disobedient in some other area of life where he's been probing my heart and I've chosen not to listen. So there, John starts with these words of warning in that first verse. These things are written so that you may not sin. Don't sin. I said there were two parts to this. There's the warning part. And I think now you'll see the grace and the encouragement. Point number two. After offering his words of warning, John balances his warning with God's gracious offer of hope and encouragement. I see it in that second verse, last part of the first verse, and then verse 2 of 1 John chapter 2. But, aren't you glad that's there? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, he calls him the righteous. We'll look at that in a minute. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not ours only, but also the sins, the sins of the whole world. So John, he will soon be leaving this world. He's an old man as he writes this letter. There will be no more opportunity to speak or teach these people whom he seems to love so much, my little children, He cuts to the core issues in these two verses. He, he seems to say, children, your greatest danger isn't the persecution you're facing. Your greatest concern needn't be your safety or your prosperity. The greatest danger you face is falling into sin. You can actually think it doesn't matter whether or not you are holy and pure. There's compromise all around, particularly idolatry he's going to write about. And I'm writing this to you so that long after I'm gone, you won't sin. That's why I'm writing, he says. That's the purpose. Pause. And it's as though as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's led into another great danger that faces these people. But if you do sin, never let it stop your Christian walk. Never, never let your sin be your final condition. You see, my little children, you have an advocate before the Father. He is always there on your behalf. The writer of Hebrews says he's a sympathetic high priest. That means he always feels with us, not against us. You have an advocate with the Father. He is always there on your behalf. It seems as though John is saying, you, you, you never have to stand on the bankruptcy of your own puny righteousness. 
can always turn. You have more going for you than you think. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I think it's as though John knows our hearts. As the Holy Spirit inspires, as he writes, he knows there are times. He knows there are times when all you can see is the blackness of your own heart. John knows that we go through these times when all we sense is our own unworthiness before God. It's the blackest place on earth. There are those horrible times when the enemy tells you your life has been nothing but a string of failures and sins, and you start to wonder if you're ever going to be the kind of person God wants you to be there. Then there are other times. There are times when friends and fellow believers sometimes can Hold on to your guilt and rub it in your face. And John is just concerned that these people know whatever else happens, there is, there is one who is always on their side. He reminds them that it's Jesus Christ the righteous. And I think the reason he describes him that way is because this one who is on our side is the last person in the world you would expect to be on our side because he's more sinless than anyone else ever has been. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he's our advocate. Here is truth that is more necessary to cling to when I need to repent but which is harder to cling to when I need to repent. I mean, I have no trouble usually thinking of Jesus as that friend who sticks closer than a brother most of the time. After all, he came, he died, he's gone to prepare a place for me in heaven, he's coming again to take me to be with him, and most of the time I have no trouble whatsoever relying on what the Lord Jesus has done for me, except when I'm feeling the weight of my own unworthiness and the condemnation of sin. And dear one, we all face, we all face the potential smallness of our own approach to God when we sin. We all sense the lameness of the kind of excuses we tend to offer. We all know how the devil will come and remind you of all that you have done when you come to Jesus with your sin. And you have to just stop and say, when did the devil get so interested in your holiness? Listen, never forget, never forget what John is trying to get across in this little verse. I, I, I don't know how wonderful my little prayer is when I sin. I don't know what kind of a mighty man of faith and victory I am when I whimper out some little plea for grace. And when those thoughts come, just brush the dust off this text. Remember John's point. My little plea for grace is not all that's going on when I ask for forgiveness. I have an advocate. 
Jesus Christ, the righteous. He intercedes right before the face of the Father for me. He enjoys perfect harmony with the Father. He has never sinned in any way. He is in a perfect position to plead my case. He doesn't pretend. He doesn't argue for my innocence or my pathetic little prayer. That's not what stands behind my forgiveness. Something huge stands behind my little cry for grace. Jesus spilled his blood from the purest life that ever lived. And it has unbelievable potential. So, so in our text, John has to set himself groping for words to make these events big enough. He's the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. John is trying to do the impossible in these two verses. He's, he's wrestling with what every serious pastor wrestles with every time God's word is open before sinful, grace-needing people. We must all wrestle with sin passionately, and we must all rely on grace passionately. So remember... Before you sin, guard your soul like everything hinges on moral purity. And when you sin, never stay in your guilt because your judge is your redeemer. And that's why John uses that legal judiciary title for our Lord, Jesus Christ the righteous. Hear the word Seriously, pursue holiness. When you sin, never live with condemnation. Jesus Christ, the righteous, is your advocate before the Father. And those are two texts that will keep your Christian life on track following the Lord. Let's pray. There is such... Wondrous depth in verses like this. We feel blessed to be able to study them. Thank you for the miracle of Scripture. The words brought by the Spirit of God, of revelation, of the biggest truths we need to know to follow you. Bless Cedarview Community Church. Bless your word to our hearts. Teach us more and more orient our affections so that we turn against sin with all our heart and give us a wondrous view of Jesus Christ, our righteous advocate, who has grace for every sin. Teach us to walk in these truths, I pray. Not academic. Teach us to walk in these truths day by day in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, 6.30, continuing our series. I think it's one of the most important things we've studied. Soul food, how we got our Bible and then how to read it. Tonight, what inerrancy is and what it isn't and why that's so important. A lot of evangelicals are walking away from inerrancy and I think it's a huge blunder. I want to talk about that tonight. And then don't forget, 
Every Wednesday, 7 o'clock, our devotional refresh, close-ups of Jesus through the lens of Mark's gospel. Take some time in the middle of the week and let's study the word together. God bless you, church. Hate sin, live in grace, and love one another.